So Miro and I are home now after being uh, away for about three and a, a little over three months. And uh, one of the first things we always did every Sunday morning was we would tune online at 8.30 and uh, participate in OBC service. And we always, enjoy, I don't think we missed one Sunday with that. And that was a wonderful blessing and tool. But you know, there's nothing like being in person. I mean, to look out and see your faces, and I recognize most of you behind that mask. And uh, even with your eyes, you can speak, and that's, that's such a, uh, a blessing to us. And so uh, it's, it's just great to be here in person. Now, my wife said something on yesterday, Saturday, and I thought it was uh, pretty cool and encouraging. And she said, uh, "Hun, I think tomorrow I'm going to go to both services. And I thought, uh, well, wonderful, that's, that's great. And I didn't say anything, but I thought in my head, I thought to myself, and I thought, you know, after almost 55 years of marriage, she still wants to hear me preach twice. And that balloon was popped rather quickly when having thought that, she says, yeah, she says, you know, I can see a lot more people if I go to two services, so... <laughs> So there, there you go. It was back in uh, January, Pastor Rob called me when we were down south, and uh, he said, you know, I'm looking out through the year, and I'm thinking after Easter, it would be great if you'd be willing to do a series of messages. I said, I'd be happy to do that. So we went back and forth a little bit, and we uh, camped on the idea of doing John chapter uh, 21, which comes right after the chapter on the resurrection, John, uh, John chapter 20. So the, 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 the title of the series is going to be Christ's Design for Discipleship. And I just love this little uh, PowerPoint template that Erica developed with her creativity and uh, just gave her a couple little things of what I was thinking in my background. And as you can see, the background on that template out there with that boat and the fishermen is the Sea of Galilee. Some of you who went to Israel with us a couple of years ago, that's right in your mind's eye right now, one of the most beautiful places uh, in the world. And so that's where uh, this John 21 teaching takes place. The second thing I threw at her, and she did such a great job, is you can see the hook and you can see the crook up there in the, uh, in the center of the screen. And I learned in my preparation this uh, last few months that the expression that we've all heard, do it by hook or by crook, which many believe originated over in England, actually originated with this passage of scripture, John chapter 21. Now, not everyone agrees with that, uh, but many do. And the first person that actually put into writing that the expression by hook or by crook goes back to John 21, the first person that put that in writing was John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, who actually put that in writing back in the 1300s. So what are we talking about here in the hook and the crook? Well, the hook, anyone might realize, represents the fishermen. And uh, what we have taken place here in John chapter uh, 21 is seven fishermen that Jesus is talking to after his resurrection. And remember, Jesus told uh, his disciples when he called them three, three and a half years earlier to these fishermen, he says, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. So the hook represents the fishing aspect. The crook, of course, represents the shepherd, the shepherd's staff. 
And in this chapter, we're going to be seeing where he talks about uh, shepherding the flock of God, those who know uh, the Lord. So that's where we're going to be going for the four weeks we have together with you. Now, for centuries, people have asked the question, why was John 21 even written? When you think about it and you look at the Gospels, every Gospel, just like we saw last week with Pastor Rob, culminates with the, resurrect, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then after they say some different things that happen after the resurrection, that's the end of the gospel. Now, with John, it's no different in that when he comes to John chapter 20, we've got the resurrection, the women, Mary Magdalene, Thomas, John, disciples, uh, see the Lord, somebody's missing, week later, the same thing. And so then it culminates when Thomas says in the second appearance to the disciples, my Lord and my God. That's probably the greatest confession of faith ever made in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, my Lord and God. And then John just adds a little couple verses that gives us the reason why he wrote the Gospels to present Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and that if you believe in him as your Savior, uh, you'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll have uh, eternal life. So the Gospel of John then is finished at the end of chapter 20. It would appear end of story. But no, John keeps writing in chapter 21 in what many refer to as the epilogue of the Gospel of John. Now, why is John 21 in our text, Why in our Bible? Why is it so very important? John clarifies some pretty important things for us that if we did not have this chapter, we would be left in the dark about. For instance, number one thing, and there's five of them. Number one is, now that Christ has been resurrected, and he's going to minister 40 days off and on. Then he's going to ascend up to heaven. And he's going to be up in uh, uh, the ascended high priest up at the right hand of the Father. What now is his relationship to the disciples left down here below? What will it be to John, Peter, and the rest of them for the next few years? And what is it 2,000 years later to you and me? The second thing he talks about here, that it's a good thing, is what happened to Peter. And last time we really saw the focus on Peter, what? He had denied the Lord three times. I don't know him. He cursed, he swore, and three times he denied publicly the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you do that publicly before everyone around you, even your closest friends, if you deny Christ publicly, is there a future for you in the kingdom of God and what God is trying to accomplish? Number three thing is this, uh, not only what happened to Peter, but now what's going to happen to us? What's the destiny of the believer? Jesus is resurrected. He's ascended on high. Now as the risen Lord and God of the universe, is it going to be a pretty easy life for you and me as his disciples? It's going to be easy for the uh, disciples back uh, 2,000 years ago. Is it going to be a health, wealth, and everything is fine gospel? And is that going to be our plight in life? Or are there going to be problems? Is there going to be uh, our troubles and persecution? And John answers that for us. He tells us uh, about what we can expect in this life. And some of you may not know this, but the fourth thing that John clarifies for us is he clears up a rumor 
that had been spreading in the early church for 60 years. Now keep in mind, if we just use a round time, 30 AD, 33 AD, when Christ was crucified, and then we advance to when John's writing, 60 years have gone by. So we're now in the 90s, close to 100 AD uh, at the writing of John. So 60 years, and you know what rumor was circulating? They started saying that I heard him say it. I heard Jesus tell John, you are not going to die. So here we are now 2,000 years later. Just think of that rumor is still going on. That Jesus told John he would not die, but even at his coming, he would be alive. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and uh, we know that's not true. So John corrects that rumor uh, in our text that's going to be before us in a few weeks. And then the last thing that he corrects and he kind of explains, helps us understand, is this. We say, you know, uh, when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ and all his great glory and who he is, why is it only four books? Maybe the longest one, 28 chapter. Well, why is it uh, that only four books are devoted to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't there a lot more to him and to that instead of four books? And John seems to answer that for us uh, as well. So all these are important questions, and they would remain unanswered apart from John 21. But apart from answering these questions, John really zeroes in on one thing, and that's the deeper issue, which is Christ's design for discipleship. And that's what we want to spend our time on. Now, what does it mean to be a disciple? And let me just say this, if I may, and I'll say it a few times. Is John 21, in my humble opinion, John 21 is the greatest chapter ever written in the history of the world on discipleship. Now, I've got, if you came to my study at home, you would see I've got a lot of books. And there's a section on evangelism and discipleship, a whole bunch of them. And they've all been helpful. But I want to tell you this. If I didn't have any of those books, and if you have never read a book on discipleship, but you mastered John 21, not only intellectually, but in your heart and appropriate by faith into your life and correlated into your life, I guarantee you, you will be a growing disciple. It's the best chapter, the greatest chapter ever spoken on discipleship. Now, where are we going to go in these five weeks? Five things he's going to tell us in this, in, in this chapter. First thing is this, the dependence of a disciple is cast upon Christ. First thing you got to learn and keep learning. The dependence of a disciple is cast upon Christ. The devotion of a disciple is centered on Christ. The destiny of a disciple is controlled by Christ. The duty of a disciple is commanded by Christ. The delight of a disciple is contemplation upon Christ. Now, we're going to take each one of those a step at a time and then combine the last two uh, at, at the fourth week. But if you will correlate this and appropriate in your life, I promise you, you will be a growing disciple, blessed of God. So let's look at verses 1 to 14, where we see the first one, the dependence of a disciple is cast upon Christ. Now we're going to get into it, but just give me one more minute. I want to ask you three questions. I want you to just sit there and kind of think about it a little bit. Number one, have you ever had a habit? Have you ever had a habit that's got such a grip on you, you just cannot shake it. You have said, I'm going to stop it. You have tried. You've promised God. You're tired of praying about it. And it just has a grip on you. This chapter is for you. Number two question. Did you ever make a, a decision that had bad consequences to it and you've had to live with it through the years? 
And now as you look back at the process of the decision-making, you'd have to confess one thing. I never made God part of that process. I never prayed about it. I never asked him for his direction. I just figured it out myself. I made a decision. Now I'm living with the consequences of it. Number three, did you ever go through a time, I dare say everyone would answer yes to this for certain, as a Christian. Did you ever go through a time as a Christian when there just didn't seem to be God's blessing on your individual life and ministry? Even when you prayed, it seemed like the heavens were like brass. And deep inside your heart and mind, you felt was God was so far away, maybe didn't even really care about what situation you were involved in. And during that period of time when you were so barren, there was no desire for evangelism. You didn't care about telling anyone. No discipleship. Bible was boring. Church was boring. Praying was something you just didn't want to do. And so the whole life, as you look at that period of time, and it could be today that you walked in with that, you'd have to characterize it as being a pretty barren time without the blessing of God into your life. I think the first step toward a growing and fruitful life as a disciple, and something we can never forget, and this is going to be harder for some of you who are older in the Lord than younger in the Lord. Some of you have been believers for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's going to be a little harder for you to keep this before you. But it's that a dependence of a disciple is cast upon Christ. Don't ever forget that. I guarantee you, if you forget it, and if you don't live it, you will fall flat on your face. I guarantee it's going to happen. So we got to keep it ever in my mind every day. Lord, the dependence of it. Lord, without you, I can do nothing. Lord, casting all my care upon you, you care for me. Lord, I'm anxious for nothing. I'm casting it on you. And so your dependence constant. You're moving through life, and you're thinking the dependence of a disciple is cast on Christ. Now, Jesus taught that in the upper room. You remember it? John 13, servant. John 14, the Holy Spirit's coming. Let's go. Let's get out of this upper room. They get out of the room. They start walking toward Gethsemane. They're going to go out the eastern gate across the Kidron Valley up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they go by, perhaps they walk by the temple and there was the temple. And on the door of the temple, we know there was a huge vine that was engraved, reminding them of God's love for Israel back in the book of Isaiah. Maybe Jesus stopped there. I don't know. I'm inferring. Maybe he stopped there. And he said, by the way, brothers, uh, disciples, uh, I'm the true vine. That's a vine. I'm the true vine and you are the branches. Then he said something like this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I in the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears, there it is, much fruit. I want to be fruitful. For without me, you can do nothing. So it doesn't matter whether you're one day old in the Lord, you've just come to Christ this morning. Or whether you've been a Christian over 60 years, we can never get past these verses. Abiding in Christ is depending on Christ and living in his fullness. And the two key concepts I want you to catch, Jesus said it, I didn't say it. The two key concepts I want you to see is where he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit, and then at the very end of verse 5, you can do nothing. Cannot do nothing. So if you try to do it yourself, you cannot do it. And you say, well, what am I going to accomplish? You're going to accomplish nothing, absolutely nothing, if you're trying to live life on your own strength and willpower. You know, they say, God helps those uh, who help themselves. To hell with that statement. That's where it belongs. 
It's just not true. It's said by so many Christians. God helps those who have no. God helps those who say, Lord, I'm totally helpless. I need you in every area of my life, and I must cast my dependence upon you. So our Lord Jesus reaches out to each of us in love and power. He says, follow me. Now, as I follow the Lord, I've got one every day, every moment of the day, I've got a choice. I can try to live life by self-effort or what we call strong self-will. I can use willpower. And if I do, I'll say it again, I'm going to fall flat on my face. Or I can realize, no, God never intended that. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He indwells every Christian. And he wants to empower us and fill us. And he wants us to live by spiritual empowerment. So what's it going to be today? Self-effort or spiritual empowerment? Uh, empowerment the choice is mine. Now, you don't have a choice to the result because the result is predetermined. If you're walking by self-effort, I guarantee the result will be a barren life, a barrenness. If you walk by spiritual empowerment, as you can see, it's going to be a life of blessing. So really, the choice is mine. Do I want a barren, unfruitful life or a life of blessing with the presence of God? Then that goes back. Am I going to try to live life with self-effort or am I going to live it by spiritual empowerment? It's one or the other. So the purpose of our text this morning, if you're open to John 21, we're going to get into it now, verses 1 to 14. The purpose is to form, to encourage, and to motivate us to depend upon the risen Christ so that our lives are filled with his blessing, his overflowing presence in our life, rather than trying to live by self-effort and having barrenness in our life. So we pick it up in verses 1 to 4. After, these, uh, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of uh, Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, that ought to tell you something. If you know anything about the New Testament, have studied it all, you know that names are listed in order of priority and importance. Isn't it interesting? Peter's first, the one who denied Christ. Isn't it interesting? Thomas the second, the one who doubted Christ. How does Christ care for his disciples to say, by grace and by mercy and forgiveness and love? Isn't that wonderful? Peter, Thomas. Then he talks about the others who were there. Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. And two others, we don't know who they were, maybe Andrew and, and uh, uh, Philip. Two others of his disciples were with him. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said, have you caught any fish? Now here, let's look at this, uh, uh, these verses quickly here and see the dependence of a disciple must be cast on Christ. But if I choose self-effort, I'm going to see the barrenness of self-effort. I'm going to see the barrenness of the self-effort life. And normally there are going to be three things that are accompanied to it. If you're sitting there today or you're uh, at home listening and watching or you're out in the fellowship hall, let me say this. If you just sense, you know, there, I, I haven't sensed the presence of God for, I haven't sensed his blessing for a long time. I guarantee you that maybe not just one, but all three of these characteristics might be part of your life today, none of which you want. Number one, there's a loss of purpose. There's a loss of purpose. John 21, if you were to put it up there and I had it, and I just had to scratch a lot of things because the sermon gets too long. But if you were to do a parallel uh, uh, study, you would see John 21. Then you go back to John 1, 
and you go back to Luke 5, John 1, Luke 5, uh, and John 21, and you would see that the John 1 and Luke 5 is three and a half years before when Jesus first initiated the call, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. First time, it's kind of like a temporary thing, but then it gets more green and he calls them to a permanent discipleship relationship when he says, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's Peter's boat. It's Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two other fishermen, why I said we're probably Andrew and Philip. They're waiting around, and they're up there in the mountain. Jesus said, remember, go up there. I'm going to go up in Galilee. That's where I'm going to see you next time. He's already appeared to them twice in, in Jerusalem. Now he says, you'll get up to the Galilee, get up to a mountain there. And they go, Maybe it's right below the Mount of Beatitudes. We don't know, but we know it's on the Sea of Galilee. And it's the very uh, same scenario that it was uh, three years before. Except this time they're impatient. This time they're discouraged. I think they're disillusioned over the quick happenings of recent days. Think of what it would be like, some of you men and women. Think of Christ called you, and all of a sudden you leave your job, your security. You don't know what you're going to live on. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's going to happen. Jesus said, just follow me. Keep, keep your eyes focused on me. You follow me. That's your job. And you leave everything behind. And then you go through the three years and you go through the ups and downs of everything going on. And then finally you come to those last six months. And Jesus said for six months he was going to teach you about one thing. How you must go to Jerusalem, be suffer under the chief priests and scribes and be crucified. But you never listened to it. You never heard it. You're still thinking there's going to be a victorious uh, a Savior and Messiah who's going to deliver us from the tyranny of Rome. And then all of a sudden it hits. Bam, 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 bam. Gethsemane. The soldiers, the arrest, the lanterns, dragging him away. You go from Gethsemane, you go to Gabbatha. Gabbatha, what's that? The place of the pavement. That's where they were watching what was taking place in those six mock trials. It goes Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, Anna. Then he goes Pilate, back to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. All this is happening so fast. Mock trial, false accusations, false witnesses, beatings, crown of thorns. And then you go to that place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And you're walking down the Via della Rosa, the way of sorrows. You get to the hill called Mount Calvary. And there you see them throwing him on that cross and nailing him, putting that cross up, erecting it. You hear a few words, seven words, seven last words, crying out, it is finished. To thy hands I commit my spirit. Got to get him down off the cross. The Sabbath day's coming. Got to make sure he's dead. The professional executioners. They come along. They're going to break the legs of all the... You break the legs, you can't breathe. It hastens to death. But not bone of his shall be broken because he's the Passover lamb. So when they came to him, they thrust his spear on the side. They didn't try to break his legs because they couldn't break his legs. It was in prophecy. Not a bone shall be broken. He's dead. He's just plain dead. He's gone. Take him off that cross. Hurry up. The Sabbath's coming. Got to protect the Sabbath. We'll lie, we'll blaspheme, we'll crucify, but get him off the cross. We do a little wrapping. We'll finish it on Sunday. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the tomb. He's lying there. He's in his wrappings. He's dead. How would you feel as a disciple? But then the third day, we've gone all the way from Gethsemane and Gabbatha and 
Golgotha and the grave and we go to the glory of the resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive. Mary doesn't understand it. Mary Magdalene, she gets to the cross. She's weeping, she's wailing. They have taken away the body of my Lord and I do not know where they have loaded him. Show me where you have taken him and I will take him. Love never died with Mary. He's risen. He's risen from the dead. She goes back. She tells the disciples. Peter and John run to the tomb. They run inside. They see all the grave clothes wrapped there. The turban wrapped separately on a stone. Peter leaves and says he wondered. He couldn't get it. He wondered at what he saw. He's scratching his head. He's wondering. John, it says, he left what? Worshiping. Because he believed the resurrection. Not on the basis of scripture at that time, but on the basis of evidence. He is alive. He is risen. So they go back. They gather in the room. They're all afraid. The Roman soldiers are going to come after us. They're going to crucify us. And boom, boom, that night, right through the walls, comes a resurrected Christ in his glorified spiritual body. Peace be unto you. It is I. Be not afraid. Somebody's missing. Where in the world is he? Somebody, a disciple's missing. Thomas, where in the world are you? Had to live eight days with a heavy burden until he saw Christ eight days later. It's what happens when you miss going to church. You miss that one message that God has for you, but you're all fishing. You're all goofing off. You're all doing something. But God is so gracious. He comes and he appears again eight days later. This time, Thomas is there. Come on, Thomas. Put your hands into my side. Look at my hands. Do you not see? And I'm eating some fish too. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. What a beautiful thing. But everything's so confusing. He's here. He's gone. He appears. Get up to uh, Galilee. Now they're up there and there's no Jesus. <coughs> So Peter speaks up. He always does. He says, I'm going fishing. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? When you're just plain discouraged, disillusioned, disoriented, you say, I might as well go fishing. That wasn't just a pastime, I'm going fishing because I'm discouraged. I think it was a forsaking, a possible underlying forsaking of his call to discipleship of being a fisher of men and a shepherd of the sheep. Leon Morris writes one of the most fantastic commentaries uh, on the Gospel of John. And here's what this scholar says. He says, the thoughts of the fishermen were beginning to turn to their former occupation. Now they had lost the presence of Jesus. So going fishing wasn't just a pleasant pastime. Perhaps it was forsaking their call to discipleship. Loss of purpose always accompanies the self-effort life, Always. And some of you, if you're barren or you're unfruitful today, he's just missing the presence of the Lord. You know what? I guarantee you don't have a purpose. You don't have a spiritual purpose. You don't have it. And you've got to get back on your knees and restore and rekindle that fire and let God restore his purpose and what he's called you to do. And when you does, remember this, it will always, it will always involve the hook and the crook. Always. He's always going to call you to a ministry of, of, of uh, fishing for men and of caring for the flock uh, of God. Let's look at a second characteristic of the barrenness of self-effort, lack of prayer. You see, one of the characteristics of Simon Peter is to act impetuously. And what we have in this record is how to get into your own will. 
Now, when Jesus puts his hand upon us and he opens my mind and heart to the truth of Christ, and he says, follow me. He says, take the hook, take the fisherman. I'll make you become fishers of men. Take the crook, be a shepherd. Uh, go out and lead, heed, and feed the flock of God. That's, that's your calling to God. And it comes also in a time of prayer when you're seeking him. But if you're trying to do everything by self-effort, trying to live that kind of life, uh, it's always accompanied, not only by loss of purpose, but I guarantee you there's a lack of prayer. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to in years of ministry. And they're making decisions in life, where they're going to go to university, what college they're going to go to, who they're going to marry, what job they're going to take, where they're going to live, where they're going to move, what church they're going to go to, how to raise the children, etc., etc., etc. And I asked them the question, let me ask you a question, have you prayed about that earnestly to God? And they look at me and they say, no. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can you know what the will of God is for your life if you don't pray? And then you go out and you make a decision. Then what happens? You know it's a bad decision. Then you've got to live with the consequences. Raymond Edmond said this, the secret for guidance is I ask, I wait, and God answers. That's so simple. Even a simple-minded man like me can understand it. I ask, I wait, God answers. That's so true. George Muir over in England said the first matter and perhaps the most difficult was to leave a given decision with the Lord after having prayed about it. To have no will of his own to desire only the Lord's leading constituted 95% of the problem. That's so true. So there's a loss of purpose, lack of prayer. And third thing is lean on productivity. Verse 3 ends with they caught nothing. And that's um, these are professional fishermen. But I want you to notice how the Spirit of God wants us to note that these seasoned fishermen, professionals, they caught nothing. Remember, fishing was their occupation. And they have to say, we didn't catch a thing. We're fruitless, we're barren. Who in the world wants a life like that? Just shoot me dead, right? Uh, to live a fruitless life, a barren life, a life without the presence of the Lord, without the sense of his blessing, without the sense of his calling, and using me for his glory? Just shoot me dead. Just give, you know, what use am I? I'm just going to be barren. I'm going to be unfruitful. No one wants a life like that. So that we lose our purpose, we lean on prayer, and we lean on productivity. So let's close it out with the blessing of the spirit-empowered life. That's what we want. And you'll notice this. Same thing's going to happen this morning and other mornings. When God calls you back to the life of blessedness in his presence, he always asks a question to reveal their need, your need and my need. He always asks a question. He's doing that to you to the more. question he's asking the person across the uh, 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 chair from you isn't the same question he's asking you. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But here to the fishermen, Jesus said to them, verse 5, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He obviously knew the answer. The Greek says you don't have any, haven't caught any fish. Have you? In other words, expecting a no answer. Why didn't they catch any fish? Because the one who created the fish had all those little fishy swimming everywhere except where the nets were of Peter and the fishermen. That's why. And he was going to teach them a lesson. They could have stood out there for six months fishing. They wouldn't have caught a thing. Jesus just rerouted the fish all over the place. He says, you had a barren night without me, didn't you? Didn't catch a thing. But then he says, you can have a blessed morning with me. So that quiet voice is speaking. And often he has to ask us some pretty hard questions. Do you really want a barren life or do you want blessing? Do you really want my power and my presence or not? You've got to answer that question. So then he might come to you and he might ask some more questions. He says, you want my blessing. Then why are you living with someone that's not your spouse? Why are you violating the commands of God? 
Why are you living an alternate lifestyle that you know is not appropriate in the word of God to a Christian? Why, why are you doing that? Why aren't you a better husband to your wife? Why don't you honor your, 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 your husband more? Why don't you love your wife more? Why do you go out and drink too much? And why do you get high on drugs? Why do you go to a, a website where you know it's going to appeal to your carnal instincts instead of spiritual blessing? You're going to feel guilty about it? And you're going to be thinking, oh, just me and I'm all alone in here. Yeah, right, but God's right there with you, isn't he? And you want blessing? You're not going to get it that way. If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll get, uh, I'm breaking his commandments. Then don't say you love him. That's a lie. You say, well, you have no right. Yes, I do have a right because Jesus said it. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. That's a proof, and we'll see that next week, Lord willing. Number two, Jesus gave a command to remind them of obedience. So he not only asks a question, he gives a command. Okay, man, he says, stay back, watch this miracle. He could have spoken the word and his command. At the Sea of Galilee, every fish could have jumped out of there, fried, broiled, scalped, or whatever. But Jesus teaching them part of depending upon Jesus, here it is, is obeying his commandments. Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote the hymn Jesus, the very thought of he said, he will not be sweetly ruled by the divine will is governed by himself, and he who cast off the easy yoke and light burden of love and self-confidence were revealing themselves again. So here they were, working hard, sincere, but there's no blessing. Time for Jesus to take over. So he says to them, what? Verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus told them where to cast the net. They obeyed. And verse 11 says uh, that uh, they caught 153 fish. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them, though were so many, net was not torn. You know what I love about this? Think about it. In just a matter of a split second, they go from barrenness to blessing. What's the difference? What made the difference? The presence of Jesus, right? That's what made the difference. You, you could be here and you could be barren and unfruitful and just plain miserable person, just a, a miserable Christian. And you know what? That can change just like that overnight, just over in a moment's notice. I no longer want that. I hear you, Lord. I, I'm going to follow you. I repent of my sin and I turn to Christ. There it is. It's as simple as that. It gets harder to fall through, but the Lord will be with you and he'll help you do that. Now, it's interesting. You notice here, it says they caught 153 fish. Do you care? What if it said they caught 170 fish? Make any difference to you? What if he says they caught eight fish? Why does he say they caught 153 fish? Now, if you want to have a fun afternoon and just spend a half hour, five minutes, two minutes, whatever you want to do, Google why did John say there's 153 fish? I'm telling you, you talk about the imaginations of men, especially Bible teachers, they're absolutely nuts. I'll tell you, half of them. I mean, they come up with some explanations. You say, how in the world could anybody come? You can't even understand some of what they're saying. And so for 2,000 years, no one's known the answer as to why there's 153 fish. But two weeks ago or three, I got the answer. Now, I know what you're thinking. You are the smartest man I've ever known in my life. Now, no one's ever accused me of that before. But let me tell you something. I think I've got the answer. And it happened over a question that was posed to me at a, at a dinner fellowship about three weeks ago. And the person said, I noticed two things that you do. I've been with you a few times. Number one, you give out gospel literature. 
You never sign a bill at a restaurant without leaving a, a gospel. I say, yeah, that's true. He says, number two, I notice you often will say to the waiter or the waiter, you often say that you know no one has ever loved you more than God loves you and Jesus Christ, his son died on the cross for your sins. I say, yeah, I do that. He says, why do you do that? And I had a, could have given a long answer, but immediately my mind went back 45 years ago. I won't, I, I've got to move on because I'm, I'm, I'm going to be over time here. But I'll make the story simple. My brother and I were fishing. We were new pastors. We had little children. We didn't have any money. Poor as Job's turkey. My brother kept saying, a year older than me. He just turned 80. A year older than uh, 18 months older than I am. And he says to me, he says, let's go deep sea fishing. Let's charter a boat. I said, John, we don't have any money. I don't know. He's, if we don't do it now, if we don't make, he says, we'll be old someday and we'll miss making a memory. Let's do it, Harry. I said, okay. So I bit the ball. I said, we'll do it. And we did it. Got on 97 degrees, Ocean City, Maryland. Uh, over there, out on the boat, four other people join us on the on the charter boat. Two of them have kegs of beer. They're drunk. They're passed out by the time it's about 10:30 in the morning. But uh, we fish, and if you've ever caught a bluefish, you know there's no fish that fights like a bluefish. I mean, you're just exhausted. We caught 37, weighed 13 to 19 pounds. I remember as though it was yesterday. And then when we left the boat, and the two uh, guys that were passed out, they woke up. We gave them some gospel literature, and we went on our way. 25 years later, did you hear me? 25 years later, got a letter. Dear, you don't, won't remember me, but we were on a boat fishing with you. We don't remember much of what happened, but, we were, but at the end, you gave us gospel literature. I've been meaning to write you for I don't know how many years. And now I'm sitting down and writing. You know what happened? We got a, we read, I read that literature and I got saved. My brother led his literature, he got saved. We gave it to our wives and they got saved. Now 25 years later, we've got children, most of them are grown up, he says, and they've gotten saved. He said, I figured it was about time to raise you. And, and that's why, that's why, in answer to his question, why do you give out gospel? Cast your bread upon the waters and it's going to come back sometimes to you. Some, most of the time you won't have a clue what happened with it. You say, what's that have to do with 153 fish? Nothing, except, did you notice? I remembered 45 years ago, we caught 37 fish. Not 36, not 38, 37. You say, well, what's that have to do with anything? Has ever, ask any fisherman, now he may exaggerate and lie, but ask any fisherman how many fish he caught the last time he went fishing. I guarantee you, they know it every time. Caught six fish, caught eight, caught 12. They know it. What is John doing here? There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing allegorical about it. He was an eyewitness. He was there. He saw it. 60 years later, he's recording it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I was there, and it was 153 fish. It's a reliable record for you and for me. But it's also a reminder of cast your bread upon the waters. You never know when 25 years later you might get a letter that'll bless your heart like it did ours. We're closing it out. Done. Jesus fellowships with the disciples to replenish their souls. He asks a question, he gives a command, and then he fellowships with the disciples. When they got out on land, verse 9, they saw charcoal, fish. Jesus said, bring. Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the fish, 153. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Jesus came, took bread, gave it, so with the fish. 
Here's the best part at all. Can you picture it? Can you use any imagination at all? Sea of Galilee. It's the morning. The night's over. You're tired. You haven't caught a thing. You come up on shore and the, the waves are lapping up just a little bit. Ah, you smell some smoke in the air. There's Jesus. He's got the fire going. He's got some broiled fish. He's got some bread. Instead of being disgusted with you, instead of admonishing you, he says, come on, you're tired. Let's have breakfast together. Old King James, I think, says, come and dine. Aren't those beautiful words? Especially when you're beaten down, especially if you've failed, especially if you're barren, especially if you're fruitless. Come and dine. Those are the times when work is a drag. Studies are laborious. Marriage is boring. Church is boring. You're boring. And you can't get out of the habit. And the Lord just penetrates you at a service like this by a small, quiet voice. Let's have breakfast together. Let's dine. It takes different things in our life to come to that point of surrender. Sometimes it takes a mountain Sometimes a troubled sea. Sometimes it takes a desert to get a hold of me. Ah, oh, Lord, your love is so much stronger than whatever troubles me. Sometimes it takes a mountain to trust you and believe. As our resurrected Lord, he says, follow me. Take the hook. Take the crook. You're a fisherman. You're a shepherd. I've got a purpose for your life. I want to use you, and I want you to know my presence and be bearing fruit in a wonderful way. Holy Spirit, do that in our hearts and lives that only you can do. Thank you for your disciples. Thank you for ones might be listening that have never taken that first step of trusting Christ. Holy Spirit, open their minds and hearts to the truth of the gospel. Bring us as disciples who are believing disciples to be growing disciples, growing in evangelism, growing in shepherding care. And might we, as we come to the table of our Lord, remember all that great love and all his suffering on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.